Hello, and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Once we set foot in the ocean, we're the visiting team. An unnecessary risk can lead to tragedy. Lead teacher Jeff Norris continues the series Radical Renewal with this sermon entitled Trustworthy Savior, which covers Acts chapter 27. For more information and to watch or hear other sermons, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Good morning, church. Um, today's scripture reading comes from Acts 27, 13 through 26. When a gentle south wind began to blow, they saw their opportunity, so they weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. Before very long, a wind of hurricane force called the Northeaster swept down from the island. The ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind, so we gave way to it and were driven along. As we passed to the lee of a small island called Cotta, we were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure, so the men hoisted it aboard. Then they passed ropes under the ship itself to hold it together. Because they were afraid they would run aground on the sandbars of Syrtis, they lowered the sea anchor and let the ship be driven along. We took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw cargo overboard. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor star appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. After they had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, Men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have spared yourself this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage, because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night, an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar, and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Abby. I think you're our first reader who came with a fan club. (laughs) Let's read read aloud uh, together our prayer of illumination. Father, when your voice thunders, it breaks the cedars, flashes forth like fire, and shakes the wilderness. This morning, by that same voice, would you break our hard hearts, shaking the wilderness of our affections, and burning away whatever is not of you. Give birth to new life in us, fresh faith, fresh repentance, fresh obedience, and fresh love. Amen and amen. A couple years ago, I listened to a podcast called In the Dark. And as the title says, it's not the most uplifting of podcasts, but it's exposing some stories that have happened over the course of the last several decades of different issues and bringing out some details that perhaps weren't known before. In their first season, the one that I'm alluding to, they recount the story of Jacob Wetterling. Some of you may remember that name if you're old enough. It was in the summer of 1989 in Minnesota that Jacob and a couple of his friends were riding their bikes from their 
homes in the neighborhood they lived in about a mile away down to a corner store to get some snacks and rent a couple of movies. That was back when you had to go somewhere to rent movies. And on their ride back home, it was dusk, something really horrific happened. The two boys that were with him still have trouble explaining exactly how it happened because it happened so quickly, but Jacob was kidnapped. And it became such national news. It was really, the podcast began to talk about and, and show different ways and how this was really the first time that we had a story that gripped the nation such that every single day, everyone was reporting on it across the nation. His parents were, we've seen it so many times now in various circumstances and situ situations where the parents are pleading on camera and that was happening then. Please bring Jacob home, those kind of things. And the podcast began to talk about, and this was really interesting to me, began to talk about how it was that event that happened in 1989 that so gripped the nation, the attention and the heart of the nation, that it actually set in motion the beginning of a new wave and style of parenting into the 90s and the 2000s. And the way to sum it up in my mind is to say this, the way that parenting shifted after the Jacob Wetterling story is it became consumed with safety and control. Parenting from that point on is a, is a nation full of parents were terrified over his story, began to hold their kids into tighter circles of where they could play. Think about how I grew up in the 80s and my, my friends and I would ride our bikes all over the little town that I was in. And my parents didn't think much of it because this is what kids do. You may have had the same upbringing. And ignorance is bliss. They didn't know the statistics. They didn't know the stories. They didn't know that that was happening to some degree. And we didn't know it either. Now, here's what's really interesting. Since the age of parenting centered on control and safety has taken place over the last 30 years, the statistics are that we are now safer than we've ever been in terms of our children's safety. The numbers are significantly lower than what they were in the 80s in terms of kidnappings, but we fear it more than we ever have. And it's because we're more aware. It's because of social media. It's because what we know and what's constantly reported makes it feel like it's happening all the time. But statistically, we're in the safest time that we've ever been on that front. But what it did was this. What Jacob Wetterling's story unearthed within us on a whole new level and what we have seen happen on a whole new level ever since then that's only been heightened by things like the pandemic is that deep within us, deep in our core, in our fallen sinful state, we have two really anchored, rooted idols. And those idols are safety and control. We don't want to feel unsafe, and we don't want to feel out of control. I think about the way in which it drives. Those two root idols drive so much of what I do. I mean, I think about tonight when I get on this plane. I, I fly a lot and have over the course of my lifetime. I've never enjoyed it. I've never liked it. I always get anxious. You can tell me every stat in the world about how it's safer to fly than it is to drive, and I believe you, but for whatever reason, when I'm getting on that plane, especially when it's at 35,000 feet and it starts shaking, it's hard for me to remember 
Oh, statistics say that planes don't crash because of turbulence. Okay, you know. <laughs> Doesn't feel like it in the moment, does it? You're far more uh, likely to die in a car than you are in a plane. I do believe that. I know that's true. But so why do I fear it so much? Well, here's why. Because I don't feel safe. Because I don't feel like I'm in control. What, what's happening when I'm driving? Well, I'm driving the car. So it gives me a false sense of safety and a false sense of control, and therefore I'm not anxious. I'm riding in a plane totally trusting a pilot I've never met. In this megaton vessel of metal that should, at least in my little brain logic, fall out of the sky. But it's safety, it's control. That's what's at the root of it. It's, it's what drives so many of my prayers. I've been taking an inventory recently of how many times I pray, and really what's rooted in the prayers is that I'm praying so much for safety and control in my own life, but especially, especially as my kids have become teenagers. I am praying so very often for their safety. God, protect them. And that's a good prayer to pray. That's not a bad prayer. We should pray that prayer. But as I really kind of dig deep into what's driving that prayer, it's not trust in the one who is in control. It's fear because I don't have control. So my prayers are not out of a place of trust, but out of a place of anxiety. It, it's, it's the very reason why my whole life I've battled anxiety. Safety and control, they're the idols that drive so much of what we want and what we do. We, de we desperately desire those two things, and it's human nature. But here's why. Here's why safety and control... The deep desire for those two things, don't, it's why it doesn't fly in the kingdom of God. Listen, the current of the kingdom of God very often pushes us, pushes us out into unsafe and uncontrollable waters. It's the very nature of the kingdom of God. It's actually God's design to take us with the current of his kingdom out into those unsafe and uncontrollable waters of life. Why? That seems cruel. Sometimes we think, like, why would he do that? That doesn't seem loving. Well, he does it because he loves us. And one of the reasons, one of the many reasons he does it is so that we can actually begin to grow in our ability to trust the one who is in control and who is the very definition of safety. In the sense of this, you've heard it said before. It's a common saying. Maybe you haven't, but it's good to remember. The safest place to be, whether you feel it or not, circumstantially, emotionally, even physically, the safest place to be is in the dead center of God's will. So he, he pushes us purposefully out into those unsafe and uncontrollable waters so that we'll trust him and so that we'll learn to let go of those idols. So that we'll see more than we ever have. Oh, I, I actually don't have control over anything like I think I do. And safety is not my greatest need. It's not. In this story that we're uh, studying today, we're, we're going to dive into a story where the Apostle Paul and some of his friends are on a ship, and they are moving in any direction but towards safety. The further they go on this voyage in this ship into the Mediterranean Sea, the more uncontrollable it gets. If you've been with us, you know that we've been working our way through the book of Acts over the last four years, periodically. 
Typically, each spring and summer, we hit on it at some point. And so we've made our way through the entire book to where now we're in the fourth year. And we're finishing the book out. We just got a couple, two or three chapters left here. And we're watching Paul stand trial, give an account for his faith as we studied last week. And now being taken across the sea to Rome where he's always wanted to go. And to have this extraordinary privilege to present his faith, the reason for why he is in chains for the gospel of Jesus Christ, to present it to the emperor, to Caesar himself. But the way in which God takes him there is not the way that you would expect. You would think perhaps that if God is going to take you to the greatest, most powerful human on earth to present the gospel to them and give an account for why you believe, that he'd get you there safely. God didn't do that. Let me read to you the first eight verses that we didn't have read for us by Abby. Chapter 27, verse 1, it says this. When it was decided that we would sail for Italy, Paul and some other prisoners were handed over to a centurion named Julius, who belonged to the imperial regiment. We boarded a ship from Adramidium, about to sail for ports along the coast of the province of Asia. And we put out to sea. Aristarchus... A Macedonian from Thessalonica was with us. Who is us? Well, Luke is writing this. And so Luke is with them on the boat. He's with Paul and with 275 other prisoners. There's 276 of them total. And I say other prisoners. Most of them were prisoners. Some were soldiers. Some were sailors. Of course, the captain of the ship. But the majority of them were prisoners. And we don't know if Luke and Aristarchus, Paul's friends and fellow ministers in the gospel, we don't know if they paid their way onto the ship just so that they could be with Paul and go with him to Rome or if they were taken prisoner themselves. Later on in a different letter that Paul wrote, he referred to Aristarchus as a fellow prisoner in the faith. So perhaps he had been taken prisoner as well. But they're with him. And, and Luke has given a very, in this chapter, a very detailed account of what happens as they go on this voyage. In fact, I love this quote from one of the commentators I, I read. He said, There is no such detailed record of the working of an ancient ship in the whole of classical literature than what we have right here in chapter 27. Now, Luke is not a sailor. He's not used to being on the high seas, so his vernacular is very layman. It's very common. He's not using technical terms. But he's very much a part of this story. Now, look at verse 3. It says, The next day we landed at Sidon, and Julius, in kindness to Paul, allowed him to go to his friends so they might provide for his needs. So we're, we're learning already that, that Paul is very favored from the very beginning. Julius has taken a, a liking to Paul, and he's giving him privileges that other prisoners don't have. Verse 4, from there we put out to sea, and again passed to the Lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. When we had sailed across the open sea off the coast of Sicilia and Pamphylia, we landed at Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy and put us on board. We made slow headway for many days and had difficulty arriving off Nidus. When the wind did not allow us to hold course, we sailed to the lee of Crete, opposite Simon. We moved along the coast with difficulty and came to a place called Fair Havens near the town of Lycia. Now, let me show you what this looks like because you, you may be like, I got no idea what all that was. All right, here's, here's how it looks on the map. So where we left off last week was that Paul, this is Israel right here, Palestine, Israel. Paul was on trial in Caesarea, this beautiful uh, port on the, the Mediterranean Sea. 
And um, what we think they wanted to do, and I say we as though I was one who came up with this. I, I read guys who studied it. Um, we think that they wanted to go more, they wanted to go this direction south of Cyprus up to Myra. But what we just read here told us that from the outset, from the very first moment they set sail, the winds were pushing against them and pushing them up the coast. They stop inside on, probably to get more uh, goods and things that they were going to be taking to the other ports. This is where Paul gets out and meets other believers. The winds continue to push them north to where they have to go around Cyprus instead of underneath it. And then they very difficultly, according to the text here, make their way to Myra. Myra is where they port and they swap ships. They find a ship that's actually going to Rome. The one that they were on was not going to Rome. So they swap ships there. But already, it's been a really, really difficult voyage up to this point. It's only going to get worse. Our, our campers, the way that we progress through with them, uh, what they learn in the Bible each week is our counselors and leaders, they take them through a progress that looks like this. They, we look at a text, a passage of Scripture, and we, uh, we identify what's the problem here. What's the problem in this text? Meaning there's always going to be some type of problem, whether it's in us or outside of us, usually centered around our sin. But it could be something else, but there's always a problem. So what's the problem? Secondly, what's the promise that we see in the text? And it may not be overt, but it's always there. And then lastly, what's the plan? Where do we see the redemptive plan of God at work in this story? To where eventually where you land, where our campers land every single week, is with Jesus is blank. And we get a picture of Jesus by the end of the week. And so we'll see where this one leads us. And we'll, we'll have a picture of Jesus by the end of this, by the end of this story. But I'm going to give you six problems. So we, we're going to make that same progression through this text that our campers do. And so we're gonna give you, I'm going to give you six problems. There's not just one problem in the story. There's six problems. And so here they are. The first one, I've already mentioned, mentioned it. It was a dangerous voyage. And they knew this from the outset because it was late in the season. Look at verse 9. It says, Much time had been lost, and sailing had already become dangerous because now it was after the Day of Atonement, which we learn by studying the, the history that that would have been October 5th of, of 59 A.D., which we're almost certain this was taking place in 59 A.D., or C.E. in the new vernacular. And so October 5th, that's late in the sailing season. Listen, listen to this. One commentary said this. In ancient times, sailing the high seas after September 15th was not advisable. By then, cloudy weather set in. The cloud cover made it impossible for seafarers to observe the stars by which they navigated. And from November 11th to March 10th, November 11th to March 10th, all seafaring ships stayed in port. So they're sailing somewhere around October 5th or, or after October 5th because that was the Day of Atonement. It had already taken place, and they're realizing we are inching up on a really dangerous time to be out on the sea. And it had taken them much longer than they thought it would to get from Caesarea to Myra. And so they're already behind schedule. The weather has done them no favors, and they realize how dangerous this is becoming. Secondly, here's the second problem. They didn't listen to Paul. Because as the story continues, what happens after Myra, once they, uh, once they leave the port of Myra, uh, they're trying to go through here, along, along, kind of through the Greek Isles here. But as they make their way very difficultly here to Nidus, and it said in the text that they, they, they arrived at Nidus with great difficulty because of the winds and the weather, 
they set out, and they're trying to go this direction, but the, the winds from that point are so strong, they describe them in the text as hurricane force winds. They call it the Northeaster. It's common that time of year in the Mediterranean Sea. And so imagine, imagine you're trying to make your way across the southern tip of the Greek Isles, and this wind catches you off the, off the, uh, the port of, of Nidus, and the next thing you know, you're being driven straight south, and you're trying to get control of the ship the entire time. No matter how much you try to control it, the more uncontrollable it gets. Eventually, you get to the southern tip of Crete, and when the scriptures say that they made it to the lee of Crete, the lee means underneath the southern side of the island such that the winds are not hitting them so strongly anymore. They, they get protection. And so once they get to the southern side of Crete there, they're able to actually get control again of the ship and make it to port. And where they port is in this little port, not made for ships, but more for smaller vessels called Fair Havens. And it's at that point that they have a discussion and even an argument. This is where Paul, they don't listen to Paul. This is where he says, look at verses 10 and 11. It says, men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to ship and cargo and to our own lives also. But the centurion, Julius, who was very kind to Paul, instead of listening to what Paul said, followed the advice of the pilot and the owner of the ship. They don't listen to Paul. It says the majority of the people chose to keep going on, to try to make it to a better port. Now, very quick application here. Fair havens, think of fair havens as the things in our lives where for whatever reason, we sense something within us as followers of Jesus sense that God is saying, stay here. Stay where you are. It might be physically, literally, geographically. It could be uh, in a relationship that you don't understand why you need to stay in it. Uh, with a friend or whatever it may be. Whatever it is, God is saying, I want you to stay here. And everything within us says, I'm not staying there. That's not safe. That's, that's the third problem, by the way. The third problem in the text is that the port is not safe. The harbor wasn't safe to winter in. Look at verse 12. It says, since the harbor was unsuitable to winter in, the majority decided that we should sail on, hoping to reach Phoenix and winter there. This was a harbor in Crete facing both southwest and northwest. So they're, they're trying to get from Fair Havens right here, which is kind of on the, the south side of this, of this cape on the southern side of Crete. And they're trying to go six miles to the end of that cape and turn the corner and hug the shoreline all the way along Crete here, about 36 miles, to Phoenix. Because Phoenix is a larger harbor where they can put their ship for the winter. They can wait three to four months and sail again in the spring. Seems very reasonable. Seems very logical. But Paul, being filled with the Holy Spirit, said, guys, we shouldn't do this. And they don't listen to him. To them, it made no sense that they would stay in an unsafe harbor when there was a safer one just down the way. But sometimes it's just interesting and odd that sometimes God wants us in those unsafe places. Even when it doesn't make sense to us. Now, I don't mean unsafe in the sense that your physical well-being is in, if you're in an abusive relationship, those kind of things. I'm not someone I'm talking about. I'm just talking about it feels unsafe because we're out of control. And he's saying, that's exactly where I want you because in, in this situation, you're going to learn to trust me more and let go of that idol. Sometimes, like the men on the ship who didn't listen to Paul, sometimes we end up in the stormy waters of life because of our foolish decisions when we don't listen. Other times... We end up in the stormy waters of life, not because we were foolish, it's just because God brings the storm. 
That's, that's a hard thing for us to swallow sometimes. Is sometimes we love, we love to say God sustains us in the storm. He strengthens us in the storms of life. And those are true. 100%. Absolutely. But we don't love saying, and he brought the storm. He brought it. In his sovereignty, in a way that I can't fully understand, in his goodness, he actually brought the storm. Whether it was a result of my own foolishness or not, he's sovereign over the storm. He purposed it. He's doing something in it. There's a fourth problem. As they, as they make their way around this cape here and they try to turn north to hug the shoreline, that's when the hurricane force winds hit their sails and drive them straight south. Well, not straight south. Drive them southwest. This is Cauda, little island here that they go to the south of. And the next thing they know, they are being pushed out by these winds into the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. And they're lost there for 14 days. That's the fourth problem. The storm sweeps them into the open sea where they get lost. And for 14 days, they don't know where they are. They can't see anything. They can't navigate by the stars or the moon at night or even the sun by day. They are completely tossed about. And here's the fifth problem. Panic ensues. They start panicking. Understandably. I mean, put yourself in their shoes. They're terrified. They're likely taking on water doing everything they can to keep the ship afloat. It, it talks about in the text the things that they did. Uh, they, they threw ropes around the ship. I don't know how they even accomplished this, but somehow they got ropes around the ship to secure it and hold all the boards together as they sailed. They were throwing cargo and all kinds of things overboard. They, at one point, they're, they're going to lose their lifeboat that was attached by a rope and just following behind and so their, their rescue boat, they, they, with great difficulty, Luke says, we, with great difficulty, finally got it aboard onto the ship. So he was a part of pulling that thing in. They're struggling mightily, and they're panicking. Verse 18 and 19 says, we took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. They're throwing everything off. And we don't really understand why, except for they were really afraid and it says it in the text, they were really afraid of this little area down here. This is called Syrtis. And that place was known among sailors as a very dangerous place because it was so shallow. The closer you got to the North African shore, you had the sandbars of Syrtis. And they were afraid of getting pushed so far south that perhaps one of the things that they were doing was lightening the ship so that the anchors that they let out into the water here would grab the bottom of the shore and stop them. The bottom of the ocean. Nevertheless, panic ensues to the point to where the sixth problem is this. All hope, all hope was lost. Look at verse 20. It says, when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storms continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. We, Luke, Ar Aristarchus, Paul, we, they're not immune to this. They're human. They feel it. They're, they all lost hope. They got to that place that many of us have gotten to in life before where we go, there is just no hope. And it's in that context that Paul stands up and he gives a promise 
Remember I said that the progress of the text is there's, there's a problem, many problems. There's a promise. Here's the promise. The promise is God's assurance. God's assurance in the midst of the storm. Listen to what Paul says. He stands up in the midst of all this and he says, but now I urge you to keep up your courage. Which that word can be translated courage. It can also be to be joyful, to be of good cheer. <laughs> Don't you know they kind of smirked at him? <laughs> like, Are you seeing what's going on? You're telling me to be joyful and of good cheer and of courage in this? And he says, because, here's why, because not one of you will be lost. Not one of you. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night, an angel of, of, of God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me and said, do not be afraid. And if the angel is having to tell Paul to not be afraid, that means that Paul was afraid. He says, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar, and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. He says it again, so keep courage, men. For I, Listen, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Paul says, I believe the promise of God. Here's the promise. The promise is that he's going to do what he says he's going to do. Take courage, men. This is Paul to the, 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 the implicit communication from Paul is, you are all polytheistic pagans on this ship with me. You don't believe in the one true God, but I do. And it's time to believe his promise. And here's the promise. And so they have a choice to make. Do they believe Paul? They didn't believe him the first time when he said, let's not do this. Let's stay in fair havens, even though it doesn't make sense. Will they believe him this time? Will they listen to him this time? As the text continues, it says this. It says, just before dawn on that 14th day, Paul urged them to eat. For the last 14 days, he said, you have been in constant suspense and have gone without food. They had not eaten in 14 days. They were so anxious, so fearful that they had not eaten for 14 days. And it wasn't because they didn't have food on the ship. I'm sure they lost some. But we'll find out in a minute. They still have food. They just couldn't eat. They were so distraught. He says, now I urge you to take some food. You need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. He's quoting Jesus there. After he said this, he took some bread and gave thanks to God in front of them all. Then he broke it and began to eat. And they were all, here's the same Greek word. When he told them earlier, be encouraged, take courage. Here it is. And they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. Listen, don't miss this, y'all. Only, only when these men who didn't believe in the Lord, only when they believed the promise of the Lord were they able to take courage and be nourished. Only then. See, the promise of God for us that we can glean from this story, the promise of God for us is not that he's going to take the storm away in our life. He may or may not. It's, it's not, the promise of God is not that he's going to take the storm away in the way that we want him to take it away or in the time frame that we want it taken away. It's not the promise of God. The promise of God is this. 
is that in the midst of the storm that he, storms that he sovereignly sends, he's faithful, he's present, and his promises are true. And you can trust him, even in the midst of unsafe and uncontrollable waters. See, for, for many of us, we think that the promise of God is to take the pain away, and he will eventually, either in this life or the next. We know he will in the next. We often think that if I have enough faith, if I believe hard enough, if I just, if I just really get my faith act together, then he will make things better circumstantially. And that's not the promise of God. The promise of God is that in the storms, he is sufficient. In the storms, he will satisfy. In the storms, he will sustain. In the storms, he will strengthen. And in the storms, we lose grip of the idol of safety and comfort and control, and we hold all the tighter to him, and we experience the intimacy that we wouldn't have experienced without the storm. I love what John Piper said one time. He said, if God's love for his children is to be measured by our health, wealth, and comfort in this life, then God must have hated the Apostle Paul. <laughs> now listen, it's, it's okay to long for those things. It's part of what longing for heaven is. And sometimes we'll get taste of heaven on this earth, and he will, he will heal people, and he will bring renewal sometimes in this life, but sometimes he won't. And it's not because you don't have enough faith. It's because he wants you in the storm. Because it's in the storm that you'll see more of him. And cling to him all the more. Some of you say, well, haven't I clung long enough? <laughs> it's been going on a long time, God. Believe me, if I could make it better, I would. But the sovereign Lord has his purposes, even in the timing of it all. And so there is a plan. That's the last part, the plan. And when I say plan, I mean the redemptive plan of God. In every story, every person who follows Jesus, God's redemptive work is written all over your story. All over it. Even when you don't see it, it's there. He is working all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And he's pointing us every millisecond of the story that he's writing for us. He's pointing us to him. Listen, I, I don't want to be um, in any way insensitive to the, the huge ways, the massive ways in which some of us are in storms right now and have been or will be. If you've lived any length of time, you know that storms are a part of life. So many of the voyages of this life, as I said at the beginning, they, the current of his kingdom leads us out into unsafe and uncontrollable waters. And so... We have health diagnoses that we never imagined having, a divorce that you never expected, an addiction you always thought you could overcome, a child you always thought would make better decisions, a battle with depression that just will not quit, a friend who has hurt you and wounded you such that you're not sure the relationship can be restored, a job that you just thought you would never lose but did, the unexpected death of a loved one, the list goes on and on, all in the categories of unmet expectations and disappointments and broken hearts and unfulfilled dreams. It's part of the brokenness of this life. 
And so we find ourselves experiencing much of what the sailors and the soldiers on that ship felt. We're scared. We're given to panic. We're tired. We're weary. We're hopeless. And just like Paul, just like how Paul stood up in the midst of that reality, and he gave a promise that brought courage. We have a greater Paul. We have one who stands up in the midst of our storms and doesn't just offer food that's at the bottom of a ship, probably soaking wet. He stands up in the midst of the storm and he offers a better food and it's literally himself. That we would spiritually nourish ourselves upon him by faith every day. Be sustained and be strengthened. How do we know that? Here's what Jesus says in essence. He says, I stand up in the midst of all of this and I give you a promise and it's this. I will not let you drown. And you say, how can you say that, Jesus? And as, as weird as it sounds, he says, because of the cross. Look, look to the cross. Is that not evidence enough of how I'm going to hold you and keep you and love you and sustain you until the very end? If you ever doubt it, look at the cross. I, I love what Augustine said in the third century. He wrote this. He said this. He said, the reason I am convinced that we are not drowned in the storms of this world is that we are being carried on the wood of the cross. What a picture. And, and it makes me think at the end of this, the very last verse in chapter 27 of Acts, they, they've shipwrecked onto this little island just south of Sicily called Malta. And, and the ship is being broken apart by the surf. And the centurion gives the order. He says, those who can swim, swim ashore. And if you can't, grab a piece of wood or a piece of the ship and float to safety. And then it says, and they all did. They all floated to safety to where every single, just like the promise said that Paul, that Paul said from the Lord, not one of you will be lost. I want you to see that. I want, get the picture in your mind real quick. See that. See a ship broken battered, torn to pieces because of the storm that it's been in and see 275 men either swimming or most of them probably couldn't swim and they're grabbing onto a piece of wood and floating in. And I want you to see that. I want you to picture it in your mind because that's a picture of you and me. We can't swim. We're not in control. We feel unsafe. But what's holding us up? In these uncontrollable, unsafe waters of life, it's the buoyant, blood-stained wood of the cross. Carrying us safely to shore. Such that Jesus looks at every single one of us who know him by faith in him, by his sacrifice and his resurrection. He looks at every single one of us as we cling to that cross of Jesus. He says, and not one of you will be lost. Not one. I will bring you safely to shore. Do you believe the promise? Do you know that he has that plan for you? Are you walking in it even when life is hard? Father, would you give us the ability to trust you? Lord, our grip on the cross is so very weak.
But your grip on us through the cross is so very strong. Thank you for the blood-stained, buoyant wood of the cross of Jesus that keeps us afloat. When the waters are crashing around us, when we're weary and scared and even hopeless, Lord, it's your cross. It's you. Sustain us, strengthen us. Help us to see your great love for us in the cross of Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Sermon Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and to find other sermons from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.